0: Hey there, Heat of the Moment listeners. This is John Sutter, and I'm guessing that in addition to hearing about what individuals and governments are doing to combat global warming, you might also be interested in what businesses are doing, or what they should be doing to mitigate climate change, which is why I want to share an episode of Climate Rising, a climate and business podcast from our friends over at the Harvard Business School. Climate Rising is hosted by Mike Tofol, a professor of environmental management at HBS. In each episode, he interviews entrepreneurs and business leaders from some of your favorite brands to discuss what they're doing to try to become more sustainable and how they're addressing risks and opportunities posed by the climate crisis. I think Heat of the Moment listeners will enjoy this particular episode in which Mike interviews Nat Kohane, president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. They talk about how companies are engaging in climate policy by participating in global climate talks and meetings, such as the recent UN climate talks in Egypt. They dive into what we can expect as countries move from crafting climate agreements to implementing them, and the role that companies might have in that work. If you like what you hear, follow Climate Rising on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.
1: So if you go around the COP now, you have people from banks, you have people from tech companies, Google and Amazon and Microsoft. You have people from heavy emitting sectors. You have people from energy companies, from electric utilities. Again, it's the place where people go to talk about climate and to really make progress on climate. And so it's become a place where folks from all aspects of the public and private sectors and civil society come
2: This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, we're talking with Nat Kohane, president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, an environmental NGO that works with companies to accelerate progress on climate change. Nat recently returned from the global climate talks, COP27, in Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt. I'll ask him how companies participate at COP and in policymaking, and how that's evolved over the years and where it's headed. And as usual, I'll ask Nat to share some advice for those interested in working in business and climate change. Here's my interview with Nat Kohane of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Nat, thanks so much for joining us here on Climate Rising.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Well, let's start with an introduction. What's your role at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, or C2ES? Uh, well, I'm I'm the
1: president of C2ES, and I just started in July of 2021.
2: And we'll get into C2ES and its founding and what it does. But why don't we start by rolling back the tape and what was your journey?
1: When I graduated from college, went down to Washington, D.C., and I spent a little bit of time at a, at a small group called the Environmental Working Group, which is now a, a pretty good a pretty good sized group. But that was as an unpaid intern way back in the day. And then and then I landed at Environmental Defense Fund. And I spent about 18 months there. And at the time, um, the acid rain trading program, which was a hallmark piece of legislation that Congress had passed in 1990 and EPA was implementing it. It was the world's first cap and trade program, emissions trading program for, in that case, sulfur dioxide. And in, in retrospect, it was one of the most um, Successful environmental programs ever. EDF was really involved in the implementation, of, and I got caught up in this sense of promise and potential from having economic theory informing the design of environmental policy to do things, you know, more cost effectively, faster, better, more ambitious, and so on. I went to, to to Harvard to the political economy and government programs, did my degree there, and I came out as an economist. And I went and I taught. For several years at the Yale School of Management. I learned a lot of economics by being a professor and teaching it, but I was impatient uh, that I wasn't more involved in environmental policy, which is why I had gone into economics in the first place. And immediately upon getting promoted to associate professor, I thought that was a good time to leave and jump into the fray. And so I went back to EDF and I got very involved working on the Waxman-Markey cap and trade program for carbon dioxide, which passed the House, but ultimately failed in the Senate. It was a big thing back in 2007, 2010, modeled in some respects on that acid rain program that had inspired me in the first place and spent three years at EDF leading the policy and analysis behind our fight for that emissions trading program. Uh, At the end of 2010, um, Larry Summers, uh, who was in the White House as the head of the National Economic Council, called me up and asked whether I would uh, joined the White House for uh, a, a, to be a special assistant to the president for energy and environment in the National Economic Council. And this is 2011, 2012, kind of the nadir of climate in some ways in the Obama administration, but actually at a period where we got a lot done on other aspects of environmental policy and really enjoyed that time in the government. But it was really intense. And so after two years, I was ready to, to move on. And I, I ended up coming back to EDF, running the climate program over the past several years. So when the opportunity came to join an organization as the president, uh, C2ES has a lot of that economics DNA. It was a great opportunity, and I leapt
2: at it. Okay, so C2ES was founded originally under its name of the Pew Center on Global Climate Change in 1998. Can you tell us a bit about what led to its founding back then?
1: Yeah, so as you say, that founded as the Pew Center, really the first... uh, or nonprofit organization, the first NGO focused on climate. Environmental Defense Fund, of course, where I spent a lot of my career, had been working on climate uh, for a number of years by then, but also had all these other things: oceans, health, ecosystems, etc. Other organizations, environmental organizations, starting to think about climate, but there was no one organization that was just really focused on climate and also focused on addressing climate from the perspective of policy solutions like those kind of economic-inspired policy solutions, emissions trading I mentioned before. So Eileen Clausen, who had been a a high-level official in the Clinton administration, put together a bipartisan board of of folks who had been involved in both Republican and and, uh, Democratic administrations, and set up the Pew Center on Climate Change in 1998 with really the focus and the goal of providing the business and analytical case for market-based climate policy. When I was working for EDF on this effort around the Waxman-Markey Emissions Trading Program, really the two organizations that were the impetus behind that effort were EDF on the one hand and the Pew Center. And they worked together on something called the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, which was involving businesses in in pushing for well-designed climate policy. So that was really the origins of, of the Pew Center and of C2S. Pew Center was a wholly owned subsidiary of the Pew Charitable Trust. Pew shifted its goals, it moved a little bit away from climate, more towards more conventional environment and conservation, decided that the model of having this in-house climate organization uh, didn't suit their strategy anymore. And so C2S was spun out to be a new organization, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, and ever since then has been its own uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization, but still with much of that DNA, as we can talk about. And so how large is the organization? For most of its history, the organization has been around 20 to 25 people um, and around five $5 million budget. We are um, about 27 now. We are hiring, and I expect we'll be, you know... Um, probably 40, 45 people uh, in a year.
2: So, how does C2ES differentiate itself from other climate energy nonprofits?
1: So, the first one of those is our policy and analytical expertise and acumen. Um, we, as I said, we're kind of founded as a think tank. We, we do have that in our DNA, uh, that policy and analytical expertise, where we've got really terrific experts on staff on policy, as well as on technologies, things like carbon capture technology, um, You know what, what do you need to get in the electricity grid to decarbonize the electricity grid, etc. Number two is engagement with business. One of the first things that Eileen Clausen did after she founded the Pew Center back in 1998 was create a business council. It's called the Business Environmental Leadership Council. We sometimes use the acronym BELC. Uh, And the Belk now has 41 companies in it. We're actually adding a couple more in the coming months, mostly Fortune 500 companies. These are companies that really run the gamut in the U.S. economy, which is one of the things that's distinctive about our mode of business engagement. There are 13 electric utilities from DT in Michigan, PSEG in New New Jersey, Southern Company, all the way to Southern California Edison out in, in, in the West Coast and everyone in between. Uh, We have heavy emitters, Holcim, the cement company, Arconic, Alcoa, Chemours and uh, DuPont, you know, and Dow, the chemical companies. We've got BP and Shell and Equinor. We have banks, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. And we have tech companies, Google and Microsoft and Amazon. So really a wide range of companies from a wide range of sectors. And the purpose of the view behind that, the theory of change is if we're going to accelerate the transition to a thriving, just, and resilient net zero economy, we need to engage economic actors across the U.S. economy. We develop our own policy proposals, but we engage with those businesses to understand what they're seeing, to understand the challenges and opportunities they see, and also to mobilize them as advocates for well-designed, well-designed policy. The third piece is convening. We have long been a trusted convener of stakeholders at different levels, local, state level in the U.S., uh, federal level, and then international level. For about 15 years, C2ES has been convening uh, negotiators, heads of delegation, or HODs as they're called, to the UN climate talks several times a year to really have a Chatham House off the record conversation around where the zones of agreement and consensus can be in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. Uh, which was agreed in 2015. Those head of delegation dialogues played a key role in identifying consensus. We continue to do that as the Paris rulebook was being written. When I think about what it is that we do well, it's that the you know things that kind of touch on those three core competencies.
2: Great. So you mentioned that Environmental Defense Fund and C2ES are both important players in helping the, federal, the US federal government Uh, design its environmental policies. What's the role that these environmental NGOs play? Why can't the federal government think through some of the issues you mentioned before about efficiency and maybe even equity? I would think we would have that expertise in-house in the federal agencies. Depends on the context. Depends on the
1: administration. It depends on the Congress and so on. One thing that I think NGOs like uh, C2ES, EDF, WRIs, others out there, is kind of be generators of policy ideas, maybe bring them in from other aspects or put them on the agenda, And which is not to say that people in Congress don't have any idea about policy. Obviously, they do. And in the White House, I'm a former White House official, but, you know, the NGOs have resources, have experts, and so they can kind of put things on the agenda or push particular policy ideas. Uh, the emissions trading back in the Waxman-Markey days, what I mentioned before, was a great example. That was really something where the Pew Center then, C2S now. And EDF work together to sort of mobilize broader support and put that on the political agenda and then inform congressional staff and even administrat- administration officials, how would you do that? You know, How would you design it? Because after all, a lot of that expertise is pretty specialized. I mean, the design of an emissions trading program can be pretty specialized. A lot of folks in academia at Harvard and Stanford and Yale and all these places who know something about that. And an NGO can kind of pull that information in and deliver it almost on a platter to government officials. NGOs can be a kind of transmission mechanism of knowledge and expertise and information. When you're in government, if you're on the Hill or you're in the White House or you're at an agency, you have just a very limited bandwidth to go out and get new information. And so having a, a channel of that to come in can be very useful. I'll give another example. You know, so much economic modeling gets done around climate. What are the impacts of climate policy X versus climate policy Y? And that by being done in the University of Chicago or MIT or all these other places, IEA, the International Energy Agency. NGOs build relationships with um, policy staff and the Hill and the White House and so on, and they can be great conduits for that. And then a third one, and this isn't mutually, you know, it's not exhaustive, but this is a pretty different one. And it's one where C2S has done a lot of lately. A third one is to just provide External validation and support and push advocacy for the kind of policies that um, that we think will be will will help accelerate that transition. So a good example here would be the Inflation Reduction Act this past year, the biggest climate legislation we've seen. The um, passed in um, August uh, and signed by President Biden uh, this past year. You know that was the largest amount of spending that the U.S. has ever put into climate with about $370 billion of tax credits and subsidies and so on for climate. Now, from a, from a certain point of view, a lot of that was just a tax bill. It was extending tax credits that were already in the code. It was broadening them out a little bit. So the, the kind of ratio of new ideas going into that, there were some new ideas that were prompted by NGOs, but a lot of what the NGO activity around that was, was building the drumbeat of support. So that's organizations that have millions of members might get their members to write in and support it organizations that that are associated you know that that have uh, communities behind them or plugged into labor or whatever might get them to support it c2s's role in those cases is to help build a drumbeat of support among businesses the businesses in our business council and others so we organize sign-on letters and get businesses to call into the White House and say we think this is really good or to call to Leader Schumer's office or whatever it is on the Hill. And so those three things are very distinct. It's this sort of putting new policy ideas on the agenda. It's being a transmission mechanism for uh, all the expertise that's happening outside and kind of delivering that in digestible ways, or it's just mobilizing
2: support. I mean, historically, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the lore at least is that there was quite a lot of pushback uh, from many companies and trade associations against environmental regulations because it would raise costs. It would, instead of externalizing those costs, actually be internalized and companies have to bear those costs. And certainly we still see that with climate in a a number of industries and companies. But we also see companies, at least publicly in some manner, leaning in toward policy saying, actually we'd love to have some some climate policy and some stability. Because we think there's going to be a cap and trade system, or there's going to be a carbon price, or there's going to be all sorts of other types of policies, can we just converge on whatever policy it's going to be, so we can make some long-term investments and have some insurance that the returns will be what we think they will be? Where are we in that journey, and and how has that changed over time, and how are the companies that you deal with directly, sort of how are they changing their narrative over time, and how typical are they or
1: rare are they? I think there really has been a sea change in how companies engage in policy. Not Obviously, not every company, um, because obviously each company is distinct and has its own priorities and so on. But at the risk of dramatically oversimplifying things, you might have thought earlier eras, maybe in the 70s, the kind of default posture was anti-regulatory, right? And then sort of there was this wave, I think, the Clean Air Act, the 1990 Clean Air Act and the acid rain program I mentioned, uh, and this sort of this uh, emissions trading approach, the economic incentives approach. I thought I mentioned this U.S climate action partnership that the Pew Center and EDF and some others put together in the in the early knots that was behind this emissions trading push in uh, that was really a great example of companies saying look if you're going to do climate policy and we understand that this is an urgent thing then here's here's how we would suggest doing it and here's how we would support it with this kind of economic approach and incentives and and trading and so on and and that still remains over the past decade the sense of climate as an urgent as an urgent issue that society needs to address that is a generational challenge. 10 or 15 years ago, those of us working on climate, it was sort of a niche thing. Uh, maybe other people are working on biodiversity, other people are working on other issues. Now, I think you ask anybody, I bet most of the people, if you did a poll of your listeners, everyone would say, oh, yeah, climate change, definitely a top X, you know, top five, top 10, you know, top three concern. You're starting to see this in polling and, and voters as well. So that's been a societal sea change that has also been felt by companies. Almost all of the companies in our business council now have net zero commitments. I don't think anybody did 10 years ago, not just in our business council. I don't think anybody anywhere did. Now, to me, that opens up a really important avenue for policy, because if you think about, you know, how is a company going to meet, how's electric utility going to meet a net zero commitment? Well, you know, some of that is they can do on their own. Um, They can make efficiency gains. They can opt to uh, build out more solar or wind or whatever it is. But a lot of it, they're going to need policy support. That's even more true for industrial, you know, let's say a cement producer or a steel producer. If they're the only company that's trying to do something, it's going to be much harder for them to do it than if there are policies in place that encourage their consumers to buy lower carbon cement or steel that that set a level playing field with respect to other countries and other companies and so on. You know, once a company sets the net zero target, there are two things it needs to figure out. One is how far can it go in its own operations and supply chains towards meeting that target? There are, you know, McKinsey and Accenture and EY and a zillion consultancies have grown up to help companies with that internal operation, even if companies do all they can internally to reduce their own emissions and their supply chain emissions they still need policy to get all the way to net zero. And that's where a group like C2S can step in and say, well, we know the policy, right? We can work with you on what those policies are that are going to
2: enable you to reach your goals. We were talking mostly about the U.S. context, and let's talk about the international climate policy context. So in your current and previous roles, you've been involved in several international climate talks, including the COPS, which is the UN Global Climate Negotiations or Conference of Parties, And I definitely want to hear your take on what just happened at the latest COP, uh, COP twenty-seven, in Sharm El Sheikh, uh, Egypt. But can you first set the stage for us and reflect on this process of these annual COPs and what have we accomplished over time? And then we'll jump in to talk about the most recent one.
1: Sure. Yeah. So these conferences of the parties, or COPs, we've been doing these since nineteen ninety-five. The nineteen ninety-two Framework Convention on Climate Change was agreed as part of the Rio uh, Earth Summit. President George H. W. Bush of of, uh, of the U S was at that summit and signed, signed the UNF climate, the UNF triple C, the climate change convention, and actually had that ratified overwhelmingly by the Senate. So that's the origin of all this. And then you start the cop one was in, uh, Berlin and yeah, Berlin in 1995 and goes from there. I've sometimes described the cops as a negotiation wrapped in a, Conference wrapped in a a trade expo because it really does have all those dimensions to it. So, at the core of the COPS has always been negotiations among members of government delegations, uh, right? So, in the back room of the COPS, there are conversations going on around pretty detailed textual agreements, right? uh, The conversations over commas and brackets and what word goes where. Now, uh, the relative importance of these has changed over time, but that's always been at the core. And it was those kind of negotiations, for example, that produced the Paris Agreement in 2015, which is sort of the high point, I would say, of the negotiations, but also they produced the Kyoto Protocol back in 1997. After the Paris Agreement, they produced the, the so-called Paris Rulebook, which kind of guides the implementation of Paris. So there have been some important things to negotiate, and that remains you know, in the, the back rooms. But around that has built up this whole other structure because essentially the COP is the one thing on the calendar every year that everyone in the international climate community is going to go to. There are a huge number of side events and panels and me- and you know events going on. There's a sort of all there's an area with huge number of exposition booths where people are talking about their organizations and programs and businesses and what they're doing. Huge number of side meetings and. Uh, and dinners and so on. The relative focus on those backroom negotiations over commas and brackets and where the and or the or is, that is waning, I would argue, relative to the importance of focusing effort on what needs to happen in countries to reduce emissions, how they can learn from one another, what the policies are that are going to succeed so that we can meet the goals of the agreements we've laid
2: out. One of the biggest things that came out of Paris was Uh, A shared target to limit global warming to below two degrees with an aspiration of 1.5 degrees. And importantly, it committed all signatory countries and not just industrialized nations to set emission reduction targets, although those targets were meant to be set by the individual companies. So that's what the commas and and crossing your T's got us. And now the question is, okay, well, what's your target and how are you going to achieve it? And importantly, we saw most recently, this has been going on for, for decades, though, really, is like, who's going to pay for it? And in particular, for the developing countries who look to the developed countries and said, well, you kind of caused this mess. And so maybe if you want us to leapfrog technologies and not go through coal and not go through fossil fuel and go right to renewables, well, that's all nice for you to say. But actually, maybe you can help us fund it. So that's at least one sticky point when we think about implementation is who's going to fund it. What are the other types of issues when you say we're going to pivot to implementation beyond the funding question?
1: When we say pivot to implementation, it's how do we refocus the conversations and the and the expectations on implementation and policies that the countries put into place and the progress they're making, rather than on the next piece of text that gets produced. There's something called the global stock take. It's a classic kind of a uh, UN English kind of term, right? If you're taking stock, then you turn that into a noun, you get stock take. So the Paris Agreement in a kind of one paragraph thing calls for a global stock take. The, the idea was, well, we need to be taking stock every five years as a global community of how we're doing towards the goals of the Paris Agreement. But it's, it's kind of an empty vessel in the Paris Agreement because it's just mentioned every five years, starting in 2023, you need to do a stock take. It, there is a connection to what's called the Paris ambition cycle. We sometimes call the ratchet, which is that every five years on kind of 2020, 2025, 2020, 2030, countries need to resubmit their targets. You have the stock take in 2023, and that's going to inform countries coming back and, and submitting new targets in 2025. And then you're going to do the same thing again in 2028, 2030. And so there's this ratchet and ambition cycle. We're coming into the home stretch of the first global stock take. And that is a really good way to refocus that the attention from you know, what's the text that we're negotiating and agreeing on to, well, what are countries doing collectively to meet those targets? What more can we do? And how can we use the COPs and use the global stock take? As a way of sharing information about what works and what doesn't, that would be a very powerful idea to to have countries share ideas about what works and what doesn't, to bring in expertise from the private sector, to bring it in from the nonprofit sector and civil society, not just have this conversation just among government negotiators, but really have a broader conversation about how do we accelerate progress? Think about the Paris Agreement. So much focus is on that temperature goal. You mentioned well below two degrees, pursuing efforts to 1.5. So that focus on temperature goals, what people call mitigation, reducing emissions, that's really central. But the Paris Agreement really has several pillars. It talks about mitigation, that temperature goal, but it also talks about finance and the need, as you say, for richer countries to finance that transition in developing countries, right? It also talks about adaptation. Countries like Bangladesh, right? With tens of millions of people living within a meter of sea level, very vulnerable to sea level rise, small island nations are at existential risk, right? And so how do we think about financing adaptation? Sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of the heat and the drought we're going to see is there's a need not only to finance the energy transition in developing countries, but also to finance adaptation so that those countries are better able to withstand the climate impacts. And then there's a fourth closely related issue that was actually the key issue at this most recent COP in Egypt, which is the idea that even after, it's one thing to help countries adapt to the climate changes that are coming, to sea level rise, to higher temperatures and so on. But there are some things they're never going to be able to adapt to. If you have a small island state that, that might be gone from the map, in 30 years, 50 years because of sea level rise. How do we compensate nations for that? What does that even look like? So there are going to be some losses and damages that are at this point unavoidable consequence of climate change, that it's really the obligation of the richer nations who have contributed so much to the problem to, to figure out, how to address, but that's a very thorny issue, and so that also gets uh, that that also gets a lot of attention. We're going to have to make progress on these other issues around finance and adaptation and loss and damage, if we're going to progress on uh, on implementing the the the, t- the temperature targets or the the policies to meet the temperature
2: target as well. Uh, so you've talked about the back rooms where the policymakers are are engaging, and then there's a whole bunch of other activities surrounding the formal element of the COP. And that includes, for many years, it included nonprofits and it's seen or NGOs. And it seems like increasingly, it's including businesses as well. So you can talk about that trend a bit. So when did businesses arrive, and and what are they doing there?
1: Definitely part of that kind of trade fair expo that I talked about. That layer that's wrapped around the negotiations. As that gets bigger, you know, you get more and more folks from the business world that are there to give you a sense. You know. This last cop in Sharm el-Sheikh was not a particularly important cop from the point of view of the negotiations, and yet it set a new record. I think 35,000 people came to Egypt for this cop, and something like maybe ten to 15,000 of those folks are actually negotiators. Most of the people who are coming are people like me, right? I don't have a party badge. I am not in those back rooms. Some of my staff might be, but I'm not. And so- you you know you you've got a lot of people who are there just for those side events maybe they're talking with the negotiators to advise them but not inside those negotiating rooms themselves you have academia you have nonprofit organizations if you have multilateral development banks and all that that extra number features a lot of folks in the international finance community and so on but increasingly you are seeing folks and i think appropriately from the private sector now it's important to note that from an official un point of view there are sort of categories of folks there are negotiators parties capital P parties, there are media representatives, there are um, multilateral institutions, and there are observers. And by the way, they're color-coded. So if you walk around a cop, you can look at somebody's badge and there's pink for parties and that means they can get into negotiation. And there's kind of a weird, you know, burnt yellow sort of color for observers. And then there's like, I think it's green for media and there's like blue for the, for the multilateral. So you can kind of go around and like, you know, it's like color-coding. Um, the point is that there's no Uh, lane for businesses. But there are some organizations, you know, that are trade associations or that are kind of nonprofits that support business who have uh, delegations that will include the private sector folks. Now, look, you know, originally, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that was mostly folks in the energy sector who were, you know, who were most directly affected by the conversation as we were thinking about it then. And I think that's attracted a lot of scrutiny, and even opposition from some folks in the environmental community. I, you know, Look, C2S works with business, so I think it's perfectly appropriate for business to be there. But there's, but there's been a lot of folks who have asked real questions, well, why is it that we have energy execs walking around? Now it's so much broader than that. So all the kind of companies I mentioned before that are on the business council at C2S, they're represented. So if you go around the COP now, you have people from banks. You have people from tech companies. You have people from heavy emitting sectors. You have people from energy companies, from electric utilities. Again, it's the place where people go to talk about climate and to really make progress on climate. And so it's become a place where folks from all aspects of the public and private sectors and civil society come. And, you know, I think the role of business there in the COPs For the most part, is like the role of the rest of us, going to these side events, going to conference mini conferences, you know, speaking on panels, meeting with folks, I think it's subsumed in that larger crowd um, of everyone who is there because that's the kind of epicenter every year of of international climate action.
2: So if you're a company not in the energy sector and you decide to send a representative to the COP. Where they're not going to get in the back room, but they're going to stay in these other rooms. What would their mission be? What what would success look like if they spent a week or two? And they came back and they reported to their colleagues. What does success look like in that type of assignment?
1: It really varies, right? So, suppose you're a, you're an electric utility in the U.S. You, know, you might say, the U.S. electric utility. Why would they be at the COP? Well, the answer is they're able to participate on panels to talk about things like how do you build the resi- how do you build out the resilience of the electric grid. Okay. And that's something that we can focus on in the U S but you can also learn from other countries and everybody is there, right? There are people from, from German and French and UK electric grids. And, and there are also people from renewable energy companies. And maybe you learn about that. And so there's whatever sector you're thinking about, there are people from around the world who are addressing different, you know, similar issues, but in different contexts as you, Uh, if you're from wholesome or, you know, Alcoa, right? There are other cement companies there. There are you know, panels on low-carbon innovation and, and low-carbon technologies and so on. If you're Google and Amazon and Microsoft, you're already a global company, but you might be thinking about, you know, Google has a 24-7 clean energy goal, right? So they would be talking with folks about how can they meet globally, worldwide, for all their data centers or all their, all their needs, their electricity needs, how can they be meeting those, those targets? Where are the opportunities to build out clean energy There might be more specific things. So for example, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but is uh, very active and growing. um, Although there's lots of scrutiny of it is something called the voluntary carbon market. There are lots of companies. I mentioned all those companies with net zero commitments or with climate commitments. Generally, uh, some of those companies are looking at Investing, you know, buying credits for emissions reductions in other parts of the country, whether that's protecting tropical forests or building out renewable power, or you know, uh, deploying cook stoves or whatever it is. There's a there's a bunch of ways to reduce emissions, and and there's a whole voluntary carbon market for companies that are buying those credits to help meet their climate commitments. And so there are a lot of companies that might go there to learn more about that carbon market or learn more about what the opportunities are. Climate right now is central to the operations and the business strategy and the long-term goals of many, many, many companies in many, many sectors. And this is the world's biggest climate conference. For that reason, I mean, most people who go to the COP probably never see a negotiator because it's got this whole ecosystem around those negotiations that provides the reason to be
2: there. Yeah. So from the picture I'm getting is there's almost like two things happening with parallel play. There's the government function, and then there's the function with businesses and nonprofits discussing and learning from each other. Is that roughly right?
1: And one way to think about the pivots implementation is if you think about the information exchange between those two, okay, for most of the history, it's been the negotiators have been the center of the focus. And then maybe some of the NGOs and observers and whatever are trying to feed information into the negotiators to affect the outcome of those negotiations. That's fine. But we'd like to actually have that broadened so that the so that when you have a conversation around implementation and how to actually meet our policy goals, that more information, rather than just, well, here's what you should say on paragraph three of the text, but it's more, let's open up the conversation for all this expertise that's among those, the private sector, the NGOs, the civil society, how to get that expertise into the real question of reducing emissions and implementing the targets that have been set.
2: Yeah. So if companies want to influence these international climate negotiations, it doesn't sound like it's happening at the COP. That must be happening more at the national level when they're preparing their negotiation tactics. Is that right?
1: There are clearly examples in the past where some big energy companies have really spent huge amounts of money on disinformation and distortion and and trying to sort of uh, get things out of whack. The focus of these COPs is increasingly and continues to need to be more focused on the policies that we're going to need to implement them, and and so, the private sector and 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 all these actors are clearly working in capitals to to shape and affect those policies. And in, indeed, when we were talking about U.S. policy, I mentioned one of the things C2S does is try to mobilize business voices in favor of ambitious and well-designed policies in the U.S. So clearly, as you say, there there are conver- conversations happening back in capital, as we say, where you know companies, private sector, NGOs, civil society is helping to shape the. The position of a country, once you get to the COP, mostly it's the negotiation among those country policymakers around their perceived priorities and interests and red lines and so on. You're not getting a huge amount of uh, any sort of things getting vected or shaped or distorted by by really any of those other non-governmental observers at all.
2: Got it. So, are there other big takeaways we should consider from the most recent COP27 in Egypt? We talked about it being kind of an unprecedented size because of the growth of of the actors who are not in the in the backrooms, the the nonprofits and the companies and other organizations. And were you optimistic? Did you come back excited? Did you come back depressed? Uh, and what's your forecast for COP28? I
1: mean, in brief, you know, the, I think the headline from COP27 that we just had is that it was a modest but real success. Um, but modest, you know, underscore modest. We weren't expecting a lot uh, from this COP. There wasn't a lot that needed to be delivered in terms of the negotiating text. There's this sort of ongoing... How are we doing in that pivot to implementation? And I think we made progress there for focusing more and more on, for example, what is the global stock take going to look like in in the next year? You know, there was the most notable progress that people might have seen um, is that there was progress on this issue of loss and damage that I mentioned before. A mitigation workflow program was set up, which is, you know, fine, sort of check the box on that. I don't think it, 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 and, and so making modest but incremental progress. The two main takeaways, really, one is we still it goes back to what you said a minute ago we still need to be meeting the commitments we're making i've talked a lot about implementing on the policy side that's also true on the finance side countries continue to make new finance commitments one of the headlines from cop27 was a something called a joint uh, energy Transition Partnership and JetP in Indonesia, $20 billion, something like that, pledged to help Indonesia in the energy transition. But that money now still has to come. It can't just be pledged. It has to come up from somewhere. And and the developed countries like the U.S. are lagging on meeting those finance commitments. And that's really important for the whole progress in the negotiation. So one thing to look for going forward is, do we start seeing some of that money flow? And, and how does it flow? The other thing looking forward at its COP28, I mentioned that global stock take. That's the big thing for next year. The United Arab Emirates is the host for next year. How the UAE runs that global stock take, how well it brings in perspectives from civil society and the private sector. That's, you know, we've been talking a lot about the role of business. Well, here is a productive, constructive role, which is to bring in experience about how we can really reduce emissions, what policies are going to work, what actions are going to work. And I think the big test for next year will be, can we bring all of that expertise and experience into the conversation in a way that broadens it beyond just those backroom negotiations, really focuses on what's needed to reduce emissions rapidly at the pace and scale we need to meet those
2: temperature goals. Great. Super interesting. All right. So final question. Some of our listeners are considering dedicating their careers in business to focus on climate change. Where do you see the biggest opportunities and what advice do you have for them
1: One of the advantages of the fact that we now see climate touching so many areas of business and civil society and academia is that there are ways to get involved and to to focus on 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 climate and contribute almost in in any in, in kind of any line for folks who are interested in research and analysis there's so much that needs to be done in terms of um, researching pathways to reducing emissions better policies more effective measures developing new technologies research in in sort of new cutting-edge technologies and materials science or in you know developing things like uh you know hydrogen fuels ammonia fuels there's a bunch of new technologies that need to be developed financing, all of that is going to be important. So if folks want to think about how, if they want to go into the financial sector and be thinking about how to channel money into a, a new climate technologies or emissions reductions or whatever it is, if, if folks are just interested in kind of running a business, every business now needs to be thinking about what its sustainability strategy is, how it's positioning for climate risk and for, for climate opportunity. So I would really encourage everybody listening, if they if they're interested, you know, dive in and find a way within whatever your chosen field is to contribute to accelerating the transition to, to net zero emissions, to low carbon economy, and and investing in the adaptation and the resilience that's going to allow us to make it through the impacts that we see, regardless of, of how successful we are on in reducing emissions. So there's a lot to be done, and um, we need all the help we can get.
2: Nat, it's been really interesting diving into the nonprofit sector and how they influence policy and how that occurs at the U.S. level and then also the international level. You've given us a, a view on COP and what goes on in the various rooms. Thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising.
1: Well, thank you for for having me on and and thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's really important that we get the climate conversation out to, you know, as as many um, audiences as we can. And I, I know that the folks listening in are a really important part of that. So thank you and thanks for for having me on.
2: That was my conversation with Nat Cohane, president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. If you're enjoying the podcast, we want to hear from you. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. You can email us at climaterising@hbs.edu. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast episode. Kate Zrenner is our producer and Craig McDonald is our sound engineer. Climate Rising will be back in two weeks with another episode See you then.
0: Hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Climate Rising from the Harvard Business School, wherever you get your podcasts.